Well, I'm excited about this passage we get to look at today because there are some details here. God gives us some details about God's plan. And I'm really... Um, a little bummed out that we're not together, even more so than, than usual, because um, this is a great uh, topic and passage really to interact on, because there's a lot that, that's in here. So I uh, do want you to think about participating in Motivational Monday, if you're available, uh, except this Monday, so tomorrow uh, at noon, we're going to not do it on Facebook Live, but we're going to try a Zoom uh, meeting. Uh, so we'll, I'll record it and we'll show it on Facebook later. But if you want to participate, uh, I sent you an email on Friday about um, uh, how to connect on the Zoom call at noon on Monday. We can talk further about it. But again, this, this because this passage has a lot of details and a lot of things we can interact on. And so it's not as much fun being a monologue than a, a dialogue you know, with you. So um, but these details, you know, some people like details and some people don't really like details. Uh, which one are you? You know, are you a real big planner or are you not a planner? I, I've got uh, some a family that I know that when they plan their vacation, their trips, they plan out all the details. I mean, every five minutes of where they're going to be for a whole week. And they plan out all of their meals and all of their clothes. They have their food packed and their clothes packed a week before they leave on their trip. And they love it. I've got another uh, friend, some friends, uh, acquaintances, a, a couple, uh, and they they don't plan at all. They, they plan a little bit. There are some details that need to be like, when are they going to go? What two week period are they going to go on vacation? And they need to have a destination. So they'll say, well, you know, the first two weeks in October, we're going to go to Denver, Colorado. And that's all the planning they do. And when the first two weeks come up, they start packing and talking about it, put the stuff in the car, then they take off, they get to Denver, they find a place to stay when they get there and figure out what they want to do while they're there. And when they're finished, then they come home. Now, I'm sort of in between. I mean, in some ways, I like a little more planning than that, I like a little bit of detail. But there's also some ways that I like, well, let's just get there and we'll figure it out when we get there. Um, but some details, in all cases, are very important. And without them, uh, we might have a very disappointing um, experience. Uh, this happened to me um, six months ago, so back in the fall. I was going to go visit um, a person who's a part of the, the church who's in prison. And they're about three hours away. So I made the trip down there to visit, you know, and then we're going to have to make a three-hour trip back, so a six-hour round trip. But I get down there, everything's in order, and I walk up to the police officer when I get there, and he says, I'm sorry, the prison is closed for visitors today. Now, that's a very important detail that was crucial for my plan, and my hopes then were, were dashed. The good news today, though, is that our passage gives us some detail about how um, God is going to, to bring all things to their appropriate and right end. It gives us some detail about our hope, about our Christian hope that Jesus one day will return and make all things right. 
I mean, in this passage, we have some unique and specific revelation from God. It's really only found in, in this passage and in all of Scripture. Uh, and this knowing these details helps to feed our hope. The, for, for our hope, uh, Christian hope is not a vague optimism. It's not a, a blind faith, an, an ignorant faith without any knowledge of what God is doing, where God just says, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry about any of the details. It's not just that kind of vague optimism, nor is it a, a kind of helpless wish. Like when um, back in the day when sports were played and we wanted, we just hoped the Reds would win. You know, sort of a helpless wish or, or like when a storm is coming by. And we just say, well, I hope the storm passes us by. And there's really nothing we can do about it. Those are not what Christian hope is. No, Christian hope consists of our expectation of the literal, physical return of Jesus to this earth where Jesus will make all things new. He will gather all of His people, all who believe, trust, and follow Him. He will gather them together, will renew them in their resurrected body, and then will make heaven and earth, likewise, resurrected, will make them new, all of creation will be made new. That is our hope. The return of Jesus to completely finish the work of defeating death and evil. Now for some, for some of you, this may be a little more detail as we get into it than, than you're used to hearing or even expecting uh, from a sermon, especially if you're here with us as a guest. You're just a curious observer who happened on Facebook or YouTube and wanted to, maybe you're, you're interested, you're wondering ab- about what does God tell us in these times of uh, chaos and, and confusion, um, in these, uh, the, these particular um, issues that, that we face with the coronavirus. Maybe you're you're just watching and you're going to get a lot of, of detail um, today um, that maybe will satisfy and even overwhelm uh, your interest. Uh, but I want uh, you to know that we get these details because we believe that the, the Bible is God's written word that speaks to us of God's plan. And, and that it reveals to us things that God would tell us that we would not know otherwise. Um, and, and some of those specific details today are crucial for our life with God. Just like it's crucial detail to know if the prison is open for visitors or not. So uh, we'll, we'll see these details in um, uh, a letter to the church in Thessalonica. It's First Thessalonians, and we've been walking through it for the last several weeks. And today we're going to pick up the last part of chapter 4. Um, starting with verse 13. Uh, so, and we're going to walk through this verse by verse um, for the most part. Uh, so let's, let's pray together. Um, Almighty God, we thank you again for your written word that does give us uh, the details of your plan that uh, uh, tells us what we need to know uh, so that you will indeed feed our hope. Uh, so we ask your spirit to be at work as we look at your word together. Uh, that you would um, enlighten our minds, you would um, open our hearts and and free our hands and feet to to do what you are calling us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
All right, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We'll read through verse 18, but first we'll do 13 here. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So the first thing, you need to know who the we, uh, the, the we is. <laughs> Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus, the very beginning of the book. And if you've been with us, that's what we, um, uh, we looked at that, the very, very first sermon in this series. And they're the ones that were the missionaries. They, they brought the good news of Jesus to the, the people in Thessalonica. And they're, they're the ones that started the church there. And now there are believers there. And it's probably been a year or two since they were there. And that's the letter is there to connect with them. And, and so um, they're um, writing this uh, to them. And, and what they uh, say clearly is they, they, they want the people there, the Christians in Thessalonica, to be informed about what God has told them. They don't want them to be uninformed, which is what um, I was saying a little earlier. God does give us knowledge. Um, he doesn't expect a blind faith. He, he, he wants an informed faith um, to trust in Him and believe in Him. And there are things that are important for us to know. Um, and, and, and he's telling us through his word and particularly for the Thessalonians then because they have some real questions. What they're wondering about are, are those who have died. And that's what it means when Paul says you, you've got um, there are people among you that have fallen asleep. He doesn't mean that they're sleeping in their beds. That's a that was a saying in the first century that everybody would have known that if someone's fallen asleep, that means they've died. Um, similar, uh, we might say, um, well, he kicked the bucket. Uh, and we all understand what that means. But in a thousand years, somebody's going to read, we said he kicked the bucket, and they're going to wonder, what happened? What is this bucket that he kicked? But he means that he died. And that's what Paul is saying here. And evidently what happened is they had an enormous amount of grief because um, he says, we, we want to talk to you about those who've fallen asleep so that you will not grieve as the others do who have no hope. Maybe what was going on in, in Thessalonica is they, they thought that if the, their fellow believers died before Jesus returned, then they would miss out on Jesus bringing the new heaven and new earth. That uh, maybe uh, their, their body would have decayed too much and would have been beyond the capacity of, of Jesus to, to bring them back to life. But they were grieving. They were grieving because they did not have an awareness of what happened to their fellow Christians who had died. And Paul wants to tell them, you have no need to grieve like others are grieving. And that also would have been their context. In uh, first century Thessalonica, uh, they would have been surrounded by a lot of pagans. And, and, and they would have practiced pagan religion. And some pagans in that day believed, you know, there are humans who are mortal and then there are the gods that are immortal. And there's no way to bridge the gap between the two. They would just, just would have said, you're, you're born and you die, that's human life and that's it. Well, there are a number of folks that believe that today. But that certainly leads to, to a real grief and loss without any hope of ever seeing them again. 
Others would have had in the pagan religions ways they could have somehow satisfied the gods that maybe would allow their dead ones to, to, to be raised to life immortal, but they never knew. There was no clear teaching around that. So when folks died, there, there was great grief. And there were, in, in the first century, a variety of, of elaborate, overextended ways of describing uh, grief that Paul is telling the church you you don't need to grieve like that as those without any hope now I've, I've done many funerals um, in uh, my ministry and met with many families during that time of loss and grief and um, and and where we we cried together and wept over the the pain and and, and also through the tears celebrated the sure and certain hope of the power of the resurrection that was for all who were in in Jesus. And time after time, I'll have families and our, our, just our intimate discussions with one another uh, will we'll say, when they've, after they've lost a loved one, how does someone make it through this kind of loss and grief without knowing, believing, and trusting in Jesus? How, how do they make it through this not knowing what really death entails and um, there uh, that was the same grief that was going on in uh, Thessalonica and what Paul is addressing with them now that we can grieve but we can grieve with hope now the other thing to notice here is that it's not denying grief see death is our enemy death is not part of the the the, the creation in its perfect form. Death is a result of our sin and our rebellion and our human brokenness. It is the ultimate sign of the brokenness of our world. And so Paul's not saying, hey, don't grieve, don't worry about death, that's, that's nothing. He's saying, no, grief is loss. Grief is brokenness of our world. So we grieve, but we grieve as those with hope, not those without hope. And that's true not only for death, but in all the elements of living in this broken world. The injustice, the sexism, the the racism, um, the evil that goes on in our world is just like death. It's reason to grieve. It's reason to lament. It's reason to be overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world. But because of our hope in Christ, we, we are not overwhelmed by whatever the brokenness and evil that is around us and even within us because we grieve as those with hope. And we know our hope is not, again, a vague hope, just this general optimism, but it is a a hope in the literal, physical return of Jesus as the victor over death and evil. And on that day, he will make all things right. He will defeat and destroy evil once and for all. I just want to take a moment just to reflect for this this moment. Reflect, uh, what are you grieving right now? Identify one thing that you're grieving, one thing that you're lamenting about the brokenness of this world and, and loss or pain or injustice, sorrow, unfairness. What is it 
that you are grieving? And how, how can you experience that grief, yet not as one without hope, but one with hope? Identify that, give it to the Lord, and experience His hope in your life. Now, um, we can go into a lot more, more detail on, on that. And what I encourage you, if you've got further questions, you want some more practical implications of how to uh, deal with the grief you might be facing, what I encourage you to do is go to the church Facebook page or the church YouTube um, site. And if you go either place, you, um, you'll find a video there on how to... Uh, deal with grief in this time. Jean Schneider, who's the director of care and uh, counseling here, she put together a video on grief, uh, particularly for this time. If you go on Facebook, just search CHPC Video Grief, and it'll pop up. You can do the same thing on the, the College Hill Presbyterian Church YouTube site. Now, there's a number of College Hill Presbyterian churches, so be sure you're at the College Hill Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati the site on YouTube, but there's a video there about grief. And I encourage you um, to go there um, to explore um, um, even more of the practical ways of living in hope, even in the midst of our grief. All right, now, uh, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, um, the first thing that, that Paul wants to get at here is that one, recognize, remember um, uh, Thessalonians, remember uh, that, that Jesus um, died and rose again. He, he has conquered death. He is greater than death itself. And then, then he says, and even um, so, God will now bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what he's saying, God, Jesus is greater than death. He's conquered it. And a day he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he will bring all those who believe, trust, and follow him who've already died. And they will be with him because they died in him. They died with him. They've been with him all along. Death did not separate them from Jesus. But they are with Jesus in what we call a disembodied state, in a spiritual state. And one day will come that Jesus returns and he brings all those who trust in him with him because they have not been separated from Jesus because of death. So he brings them, brings all those who've fallen asleep, those who are died, now with Jesus. Now here, here come the details. Um, for this, verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, the, this, uh, Paul first says, now this is a word from the Lord. This is a special revelation that, that Paul and his crew have received from God during this time. An explanation of the details of what happens when Jesus returns. And he paints this picture, right? Those that are alive will be on the face of the earth. And, and Jesus will appear with all who've, uh, died in him, with him, and then uh, when he appears, it, it will be with loud noise and magnificent announcement. 
right? The, the, the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. It's not going to be in secret when Jesus returns. Everyone will know that it is happening. And Paul here is using a lot of, of language from uh, older scri- scriptures in the Old Testament, from like Daniel and Zechariah and Joel, describing that day when God will return to make all things right. And Jesus is the one who comes making, bringing that day, that day of the Lord is now upon us when all will be made whole again. And the key point, the new detail is he says, and the dead will rise first. He's addressing the question that the the, the church in Thessalonica has, that they're wondering what happens to those who believe in Jesus who've already died. And he says, this is what happens. When Jesus comes and he comes in the, the spiritual state, Jesus is in his bodily form, but all the Christians who are with him now are in their spiritual state. Then Jesus gathers together the matter necessary for their bodies to be reformed. And in that moment, their body and their spirit come together in their renewed, resurrected state. And all along, the people on the earth are seeing this magnificent explosion of resurrection. God's resurrection power is so great... That God is able, when Jesus returns, to bring all the matter necessary to bring every single body of everyone who believes, trusts, and follows Jesus, who has died, bring their spirit to unite with the matter that makes up their body so that they are one and whole. Now, how God does that, those are details we don't get. But in the grace and mercy of God, He gives us in our little bitty minds, the details that we need so that we can understand the steps of Jesus' return and the renewal and the resurrection of all of creation. A couple things just about uh, even th- this reality. Uh, one, it, it addresses how any, anyone who dies in some catastrophic manner where their whole body is destroyed, what happens to them? Well, the power of the resurrection is great enough to bring them back together at the time of Jesus' return. It also answers the, the question about cremation. Is it okay to be cremated? Yes, it is. The power of the resurrection is greater than however we might die, however our bodies might be destroyed in death. And then, after that great um, resurrection power is witnessed by those who are on the earth, then is the great reunion of verse 17. Then, we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the great reunion. Jesus, those who believe, trust, and follow Him, who have died, now in their resurrected body are all together, and then those on the earth who believe, trust, and follow Jesus. Now, in that moment, in, they, they bypass death. Instantaneously, from their broken bodies, they are given glorified bodies, resurrected bodies, and unite in this magnificent reunion 
with their Lord, Savior, and Creator. Uh, a couple things um, there that, that you notice. Again, you see the value of our bodies to Jesus. We talked about this on Easter Sunday, of those that uh, remember that sermon, just how important bodily resurrection, the fact that our bodies are resurrected means how important our bodies are to God right now. They're essential to, to who we are, intrinsic to who God has created us to be. And now all are with Jesus, we're told, in the air, meeting with Jesus in the air, and we're to encourage one another with those words. But we miss an element of what Paul is telling to the, the, the Thessalonians through this passage because we don't get what he means by meeting in the air and what that meeting is like because Paul uses a language that would be very familiar with first century um, readers. They would understand the language he was using was not just a regular meeting but a unique special kind of meeting in the air. It was a a meeting that would be used uh, by a a city who was like under attack by another army. And they send their their king and their army out to battle to defeat the enemy. And the city dwellers stay in the city. They close the gates and they send their army out. And as their army goes out, then uh, they fight the battle, but they don't know what happens. They have folks on on guard, watching, um, on the watchtower, looking for the, their army to, to return. And when the, the person on the watchtower sees the army coming closer, then as they come closer, he sees that the king is still in the lead, and he sees that the victory the victory flag has been raised, and the army is coming back as a victorious army from battle. And he shouts back to to the city, to all who are left in the city, the king is returning, the army has been victorious. And the crowd shouts, they open the gates, and the crowd run out to the king. And they meet together in the same way that Paul says Jesus and those resurrected saints now meet with Jesus. Like that, those city dwellers welcoming home their victorious king because the battle is over and has been won. It's the same word that's used on Palm Sunday when the the city dwellers of Jerusalem run out to Jesus who's riding on a donkey and they have a victory parade with him as they then enter into Jerusalem. You you see it uh, today as well. In um, when someone who's been serving in the uh, army returns home, and they're a soldier returning from war. You know, you see the picture. You know, the the plane is on the tarmac. They they bring the the stairs. The the soldier then opens the door and descends from the stairs. The band is playing. The crowd is is clapping. And as the soldier comes down the tarmac, takes a step or two, they release the ropes, and the, the family runs to the soldier, hugs and kisses and cries and celebration, and then they go home. They they keep going home. That's the picture of Jesus with his resurrected, renewed church with him. Then they meet with Jesus. They don't go back somewhere else. They keep coming home to the renewed earth of Revelation 20 and 21. 
This is the last days of Jesus coming, renewing the church, renewing all of creation. On that last day, we join together to then come home with God to live forever in worship and joy and fruitfulness in the pleasure of God's creation, complete justice and peace and shalom and truth and goodness. This is our hope that is literal and physical. Jesus one day will return and make all things right. And all things will be made renewed and redeemed and whole. Now, for for those of you who are curious, um, onlookers, just checking out what does it mean? Uh, What what happens at at church? What are are they saying in Christian churches? What does it mean to know Jesus? How does God relate to life? If you're just checking them out, I'd love to share with you how you can know, trust, and follow Jesus. And I'd uh, invite you to, to ask me and love to share with you that. I, I actually invite you to find a Christian friend that maybe you're sitting with right now to ask, what does it mean to know, to trust, to, to follow Jesus? Because if this is true, if, if this is true, if this how the world ends, maybe you want to be a part of that. And, and maybe that Christian friend of yours is wondering, how do I tell him? What does it mean to know, trust, and follow Jesus? Well, if, if that's the case, if you're that Christian friend, invite you to email me, dsmith at chpc.org. And if you, um, as one who's an interested onlooker, wondering what does it mean to know and trust and follow Jesus and to be a part of this grand reunion and this grand celebration, invite you, but you don't have a Christian friend to, to connect with, invite you to email me as well at dsmith at chpc.org and we'll gladly uh, talk about what the Bible says it means to know, trust, and follow Jesus and to be a part uh, of this grand resurrection, this grand reunion. Now, for all of us, what, what is the impact for you today of these details on your life? How do we take these details and this reality um, and, and do what Paul wants us to do with it, where he says, take these words and encourage one another in the midst of the brokenness of this world, in the midst of the death that is around us. Continue to encourage one another. How does our hope in Jesus' return enable you to live more freely, courageously in this broken world? Now, I know for some, these are a lot of details, and this may even be a new or even unusual story to have such detail of a, fig, of a, of a literal return of Jesus. And it may be just too confusing right now. I encourage you, keep reading. Keep joining back with us as we walk through um, uh, Paul's correspondence with the, uh, the church in Thessalonica because he, he gives even more about that day and, and paints even a bigger picture of our hope of Jesus' return to make all things right. But I do want you to dream with me just for a moment. Dream with me. What would it look like in our families, in our cities, in in our community, 
if, if as we endured the pain of this world, the brokenness of this world, and, and we grieved and we had loss, we had pain, we, we had injustice and, and brokenness, we experienced it, we did so as those with hope because we know that one day Jesus will return and made it all right. What, how would that impact our families, our city, our world? If we, we live holding on tightly to this hope that Jesus will return and make all things right. Amen.